Okay, morning everyone. Uh, thank you for making it through. As you can tell, we are running a little bit late. Uh, we will probably finish maybe five to ten minutes later than scheduled so we can make up some time. Good morning. My name is David Kirk and I'm the chair of the Microinsurance Committee. So I'm chairing the session today. You won't hear too much from me more now. Um, the Insurance Act came into effect on the 1st of July this year, introducing the designated microinsurance license category and the regulations and potential standards for microinsurance. I've been waiting sort of eight, nine, ten years for this, so for, for the, those of us involved, it's been quite a big moment. So now is the right time to, to understand the role of actuaries in microinsurance and consider questions around the financial soundness and fair treatment of customers. So this morning we have, a, a, I guess, a panel or, or a series of three speakers. Janice uh, Angove is the Deputy Chair of our Microinsurance Committee. She's going to give an overview of the new re regulations and some professional considerations. Um, if you haven't seen yet, there also is a, an article in the South African Action Magazine by one of our other committee uh, members, Nabila Collier, uh, also looking at some of the, the same considerations, so give, a, give that a read later on if you, if you want to. Um, after Janice, William Melville is going to share some insights on the microinsurance solvency requirements uh, as compares to the broader SAM SCR requirements, and this is from his master's research at the Santa Bush University. Then we're very uh, fortunate to have Seth Ishan here. Seth is uh, with the regulator in Ghana. He's the head of supervision and actuarial at the National Insurance Commission in Ghana. He's going to cover some of their experiences around the fair treatment of, of customers and the response to the insurance regulator in Ghana. Now, um, there is going to be some live pollen during the, the presentations. So if you can, just get your app ready and downloaded and installed and logged in and so on. We'll be doing that in a moment. Um, I'm also going to be a little bit uh, disciplined and cut off the speakers once they've had their lot of time. I may ask them a single question after the presentation, not for them to answer them, but just for them to think through. And once all three speakers have had the chance, we will then also take additional questions from the audience. Uh, so, Janice, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, David, and good morning. Um, so we'll start today by looking at an overview of the regulatory requirements for products in the microinsurance space, as well as the role of the actuary in microinsurance. And then after that, uh, we'll look at some of the questions around professional requirements for actuaries working in microinsurance and some of the issues and challenges um, of working in this space. So firstly, the objectives of the regulatory framework for microinsurance is to reduce barriers to entry and to ensure that customers are protected. So one of the ways to the regulator is achieving this is by creating a simple, low-risk product category for microinsurance business. So these products are limited to products that have a low sum insured, uh, are risk-only products and have a maximum term of 12 months. And this supports the uh, simplified formula-based approach for calculating the technical provisions and the solvency requirements. And also the, then assets are limited to cash and money market investments. And then if we look at the product rules, there are a number of um, standards that are required for microinsurance products that really look at fair conditions in those policies. So there's a maximum waiting period of three months 
for 12-month policies or six months if your product is longer than 12 months for the funeral insurance business. So it's the responsibility of the insurer to demonstrate that they are treating customers fairly, and this might filter into some of the inputs that actuaries might give uh, in terms of the micro-insurance business. So if we look at the role of the actuary, so even though there are simplified formula-based calculations for the solvency and technical provision calculations, the actuary is still required to give an opinion to the board on the methodology and the assumptions, the data in terms of sufficiency and quality, how the assumptions and experience pans out, and then whether the calculations are accurate. So these are the types of things that actuaries would be giving um, input on in looking at technical provisions and solvency in, in other areas of actuarial work. Actuaries are also meant to give input on whether the risk management and internal control functions are effective um, relating to the areas of work where the actuary is responsible. And then also, um, in terms of products, the actuary needs to give input into the actuarial soundness of the product development and product design, looking at things like the terms and conditions of the products, premiums, obligations, and whether there is sufficient capital to support underwriting that business. So the actuary in, involved in a micro-insurance micro business will be interacting with the board on a number of areas around um, the solvency and also giving input to the risk management systems. But given that we may expect to see new insurers or new micro-insurers in the market that may have very little experience with formal or traditional insurance, it's likely that actuaries might give input to in a number of other areas of, of the insurance business. And earlier this year, the Microinsurance Committee of the Actuarial Society had a look at the regulatory and professional requirements um, for a microinsurance business and the roles that actuaries, um, members of the Actuarial Society felt that the um, actuaries would would be um, involved in in the microinsurance business. So I think it'll be good to give you as an opportunity an opportunity to give your input in this area. So we've come up with a couple of areas where we think that actuaries might be involved in micro-insurance business beyond the um, regulatory role. So what do you think is the likely most common additional role for the head of the actuarial function um, in, for a micro-insurer? So I've put, we've got risk and risk management, investments and asset liability management, reinsurance arrangements, business projections and scenario testing, and economic capital. So I'll give you a few, ah, oh, there we go. So we'll give you a few minutes to, to vote. It's a bit difficult to have 50% when there are only eight votes. Are you going to vote? <laughs> I know the answer. <laughs> okay, well. I know what I would have voted, but I don't know the answer. 
A B and C terrible letters. Okay, so maybe last chance for the people who are for the people who are not technologically minded like me. Um, should we see if we can get to 35? Okay, great. Oh, so we have some C's and E's. Great. So thanks very much. So it's an interesting perspective. So my choice would have been the business projections and scenario testing because I really feel that actuaries can, can add value in, in helping um, insurers to understand their business and helping them to understand their business in a more, with a more longer-term view. And then there are a lot of areas of risk that need to be managed in terms of microinsurance business, where actuaries, of course, have um, insights into insurance risk and can, can give some inputs. Um, so, interestingly, our input from our survey earlier this year, besides the um, regulatory requirements around giving inputs into board decisions and then also looking at setting, uh, communicating the appropriateness of the methods for calculating the technical provisions and the reserves, the second highest um, was actually giving inputs on reinsurance. So we have a different audience here. So I think that it's important to bear in mind that actuaries will be, are likely to be involved in a wider range of roles than just giving inputs on to the appropriateness of the technical provisions and the solvency requirements, and that we also need to consider these types of roles that actuaries might play in, in microinsurance when we are looking at the professional requirements and any guidance that the profession may give to actuaries working in the space. So if we look at setting some minimum requirements for actuaries who would be acting as the head of the actuarial function for microinsurance. The regulator requires that position to be filled by somebody who's an associate or a fellow of the profession with practical experience. So it's up to the actuarial society to give some input into what that practical experience is, and we've also considered what we would be appropriate in terms of qualifications. So the Microinsurance Committee has looked at these issues and taken into account um, the types of risks and challenges in this market and has considered that a person who would act as the head of the actuarial function for microinsurers should be a person who has passed at least one of the F100 series of exams in the relevant um, area. So if a person's going to be looking at health microinsurance, they should have the health, the health subject. And this is really because um, because you need to give an opinion on the reserving and the solvency modelling that somebody with a deeper and more rounded understanding of these issues from the F100 series subjects would be appropriate. And then we've also considered somebody with four years of relevant practical experience um, would be able to have a practising certificate for microinsurance business. And there's been quite a lot of debate in the committee around whether it's important to issue professional guidance um, for actuaries who will be working in microinsurance. So we are considering whether we need to, to issue a separate practice note or guidance note and whether that should be more principles-based 
just looking uh, giving a, a guidance on areas to consider or whether it should be more detailed on how to go about setting assumptions or considering whether assumptions are appropriate. So it's important to get a balance given that um, this is a new area and um, the, the business is still developing, so we don't want to be too prescriptive and um, end up with a checkbox approach where um, the market is still developing and where products, new products would be coming into the space. So that's a question for everybody, I think, in the room to think about in terms of what's appropriate, in terms of the guidance the profession should be giving to actuaries working in the space, and also what experience um, requirements would be appropriate. And then also other areas that have, have come up in our discussions um, as the Microinsurance Committee, just looking at the issues and challenges that relate to microinsurance business. So firstly, um, we need to really consider the impact of some of the regulatory requirements on microinsurance. So particularly in the product standards, there are issues around setting the maximum waiting period and how that might increase um, anti-selection in this area. And it's really a difficult balance and, and actuaries would need to think about how they will balance treating customers fairly, um, the viability of the business and also making sure that premiums are affordable um, for this target market. Also, we have quite a lot of experience in funeral insurance and, and credit life insurance, but the microinsurance regulations allow scope for many types of products, especially um, short-term classes of business. So um, actuaries will be working with new products and new target markets, and it's important to be able to understand the behavior of those consumers in that area. Um, and a big challenge for me is really that there's not a lot of data sometimes for microinsurance business. And even though the, the business is meant to be simpler and lower risk, there's a lot more judgment involved in determining whether your assumptions are appropriate and practical. So, so that's an area to consider in terms of supporting um, actuaries working in this area. And then lastly, even though products are meant to be simple, the business models can be very complex and there can be very complex relationships between the various partners uh, partners in the, the business and um, maybe sometimes the reasons for failure are not necessarily pricing issues but, but areas where um, partnerships have not worked well. So actuaries need to also bear in mind the wider risks um, in the business and issues around um, compliance in those areas as well. So. Um, now that I've given us all things to think about, and please come up with questions in these areas for the question and answer session, I'm going to hand over to William, who will look at the solvency requirements for microinsurance business in more detail, um, and compare it, comparing it to the SAM standard approach. Thanks, Janice. Um, while you're sitting down and William's getting up there, I do have a question for you to think about in the meantime. Um, there's been a fair, a fair amount of pushback on the policyholder protection rules in terms of uh, funeral business, and the proposals there have been dialed back quite a lot. Um, what do you think about the impact of, of how that is going to, uh, whether the PPRs for funeral actually are similar to market insurance or, or not? But you can think about that. Um, okay, I'm going to think about that. <laughs> Cool. 
Thank you, Janice. Um, so good morning, everyone. I'm going to be talking about discussing the two different capital requirement options for South African microinsurer. So the first option is a simplified microinsurance capital requirement. So this is either 15% of net written premiums in the previous 12 months or the 12 months before that, whichever is larger, and then there's an absolute minimum of 4 million rand. Now to qualify for the specialized license, um, Janice has already mentioned some of the conditions, but the most important from a capital requirement perspective at least is that you need to have a sum assured of less than 50,000 rand for life insurance products and then 100,000 for general insurance products. And then finally, the contract boundary should also not exceed 12 months. So the other option, naturally, is the SAM SEL. So this is obviously a much more complicated calculation consisting of the various risk modules, sub-risk modules, and correlation matrices. The SAM SEL also has a much higher absolute minimum requirement of 15 million rand. So there are some simplifications that would apply for our microinsurer because of that short contract boundary of 12 months, but the calculation still remains a lot more complicated than the base, uh, than the simplified approach. Now, the SAM SEL has been calibrated to survive a one in 200 year event, as you all know. Um, this is contrasted with the microinsurance capital requirement, where it's actually unclear what it's been calibrated towards. Um, so a natural question that followed up from this was, how do these two capital requirements actually compare? So to do this, we needed a model insurer, which we then built, and we chose to model funeral insurance business, since it's the most prevalent in the microinsurance space. So some of our assumptions are that we assumed 300,000 lives assured and 10,000 average sum assured as our base scenario, um, and then we used various different sources to calibrate our model the most important of which was the long-term assurance assistance business um, statistics, formerly produced by the FSB and will now likely be produced by the Prudential Authority. So just to give you an idea of what our model insurer looks like, so there's a breakdown of the, how the premium income is spent. About 45% of the premium income goes towards claims, 25% to administration expenses, 5% to internal acquisition expenses, and then another 20% to commission, and the final 5% or so is profit. So now here is a bit of it's a graph of the comparison of the capital requirements. So this shows the two requirements as a pro proportion of technical provisions over a 10-year period. So the first thing to note is that the two capital requirements actually produce fairly similar results, at least for our model. So this was a good thing for us. It showed that the simplified approach does seem to be a good approximation of the SAM SCR. The second thing that you might notice is that initially the microinsurance capital requirement exceeds the SAM SCR, and as we go on with time, then the SAM SCR, I mean, sorry, the other way around. The SAM SCR is larger in the start, and then towards the end, the microinsurance capital requirement is the larger of the two. So the main factor that drove this in our model was that we assumed improving mortality rates going forward. This meant that our SAM SCR risk module towards mortality, or the mortality risk module was declining over time. So what this highlighted quite nicely to me was that risk sensitivity in the SAM SCR, which the microinsurance capital requirement is lacking. So in this scenario, if we're assuming improving mortality rates, that means our insurer is paying out less claims going forward, which if everything else remains equal, it means our insurer becomes more profitable. A more profitable insurer is naturally a less risky insurer, and thus we would expect a lower capital requirement. Um, the SAM SCR reflects this, whereas the microinsurance capital requirement does not. If you consider the reverse of this, it may be a little bit more obvious. If we had in increasing mortality rates going forward, then our insurer would be paying out more claims and would be less profitable, becoming more risky, here, the SAM SCR would increase to reflect this higher risk, whereas our microinsurance capital requirement would not. Now, I've spoken quite a lot about mortality risks, but there are naturally other risks for a microinsurer as well, one of these being expenses. So my audience poll question is, in what range, 
as a proportion of premium income would you expect expenses to lie in? So this is the variation over a, a time period, let's say one year, or one to five years, um, and that the expense I'm talking about here is that administration expense where the base is 25%. So I don't know if we can go to the polling. Cool. So there is naturally no right answer to this question, um, as you'd imagine. It depends very much on your insurer, the time period you're looking at, what business they're in, what country they're operating in. But the one that we looked at was the long-term assistance business ratios, as I mentioned earlier, and particularly assistance business is mostly made up of funeral insurance business. Um, looking over a five-year period, an individual insurer's variation was about 20 percentage points, so that would be more in line with D. But again, if you looked at variation between over across, across different types of insurers, the variation was even larger. So obviously there's still no clear answer to this, but yeah, so can okay, maybe go back to the slides, please? Cool. So the follow-up question to that, for us at least, was which of these two risks, mortality and expenses, did we think would be greater, or what, which of these two risks is greater for a microinsurer? So the first test we did, we wanted to see what change in those, uh, the change in the purpose, what percentage change in each of those would result in our microinsurer going insolvent? So as you can see from there, the expenses is actually greater. Compared, well, there's a much larger change required in expenses, the mortality rate, which means that, at least from our perspective, initially that expenses was a lower risk than mortality. This is also in line with the SER requirement, where about 20% in our model was weighted towards expense risk, whereas 60% went to the two different mortality risk modules. But of course, this doesn't tell the whole story, as we've only now changed one variable at a time. We also wanted to look at situations where we're changing more than one variable. So we did notice that there were some situations where expense risk did become a lot more risky for our insurer. So one of, this is, one of these are when we're considering an increase in new business. Say it goes from 2% to 12% of monthly rate. Suddenly, our expense risk becomes a lot larger. In fact, the stress required to go bust under this situation goes from 75% to 45% when we're holding the microinsurance capital requirement. That change is exactly the same as the change, you'd, or approximately the same as the change you'd require in mortality rates for our insurer to go insolvent. So under this situation, expense risk and mortality risk was much closer together. A similar situation is if you consider lapse risk. Um, if, if lapses go up, then also your expenses becomes a lot more risky because of that large overhead component. But now moving on to our final comparison, which was to look at what happens if we change all our variables at once, or as many as we can at a time. So to do this, we fitted statistical distributions to the various risk drivers in our model, and then ran numerous simulations and counted the number of times our microinsurer went insolvent. We also looked at what happens if we do this with different sized microinsurers. So as you can see from the graph, um, which gives the two insolvency rates are quite similar, which you'd expect given that the nominal value does not differ that significantly. Um, what you can also notice is that by about 20 to 25,000 lives assured, both capital requirements result in an insolvency rate of less than 0.5% as is required by SAM. But as you can see on the other side, that rate goes up quite significantly when we're looking at fewer lives assured, less than 5,000. Um, so this was a bit of a concern for us since we assumed that the sort of drive there behind this legislation is to help those smaller microinsurers. Now, the reason why you see this trend going upwards is the law of large numbers. As you have fewer lives assured, your claim variation becomes a lot more significant. 
But of course, what I've done here is I've ignored that minimum capital requirement, which kicks in at about 45 to 50,000 lives a short. So when you do allow for that, then the, cap the insolvency rate would never fall be below 0.5%. So effectively, that risk for smaller insurers is wiped out. But then this is the question that I maybe want to leave with the audience, is did this, does the simplified approach actually help those very small insurers? So if an insurer is holding 1,000 lives assured, 4 million rand capital is very significant. Um, but if you ignore that absolute minimum, then suddenly the insolvency rate becomes very high. So has the simplified approach really helped smaller insurers to formalize or the funeral partners? Thank you. Thanks, William. One question perhaps for you to think about in the meantime is the relative benefit of proportional and non-proportional reinsurance between the microinsurance world and the, the SAM world because they potentially could have um, a different impact, so something to, to think about. Seth, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't have any fancy graphs or anything. Mine is a lot more easier, <laughs> treating customers fairly. Um, when it comes to microinsurance, there are two key questions. One. Is it sustainable? Is it profitable for the company who's actually um, going into the microinsurance business? And the second question is, is uh, customers getting good value out of this? And so those two has been the two key questions that we think about when we look at microinsurance. Um, in Ghana, we took a policy decision that we will not allow there to be a microinsurance company. So we allowed the banks to have microfinance institutions, and within three, four years, we had over 600 companies, and you still had the same regulatory resources supervising them, and so the level of supervision for those kind of institutions weren't as good as it could be. So with microinsurance, we decided that it will be conventional companies that can issue microinsurance products, but we wouldn't have micro-insurance product, uh, micro-insurance companies. So the key things that when we look at um, treating customers fairly that we think about are one, the product, the distribution, how the companies, uh, how the companies treat policy orders going forward, and that is through the ongoing services and also the payment of claims. Um, one of the things that we require of companies is that if you say that you are selling a micro-insurance product, you need to do what we call an assessment to prove that that, that actual um, um, product is actually a microinsurance product. So one, is a product affordable to the target market? And you need to have a target market in place that you want to sell to. And two, you need to also think about the distribution. Um, and the distribution is what is um, very, very important. For example, um, most of the microinsurance products that started in Ghana started off with what was called, um, they were free. So if um, I have a, um, a mobile phone with, um, or a contract with MTN in Ghana, and maybe I use 50 CDs a month, then automatically I get free life cover. So that's how most of it started. Then over the past four years, it, all of them have been moved into actually um, people actually paying for the premiums. And the payment is either two through ways, either through a reduction in your airtime credit or actually paying through your mobile money wallet. And there's a very, it's important to understand that too. Mobile money, um, when, the mo when you have an agreement with the, um, the telecom companies, mobile money, the sort of commissions that they take is up to 10%. 
But if you are getting the premiums paid through a reduction in airtime credit, the premiums, um, the commissions they can take can go all the way to 35 or 40 percent. So that then comes uh, affects the value that you then give to the policyholder because if the third party is taking up to 40% of your premiums, then you then have to think carefully about what sort of claims ratio you pay at the end of the day. So now let's talk about claims ratio, and we want to quickly do another survey in which we look at what do we think are the average claim ratios for microinsurance products in Africa. So if you could please go into our apps and Either vote A, B, oh, we're already there, so that's good. Okay, so we have a few optimists who think that Claim ratios are 65%. Um, <laughs> I'll go to the answer. Can we please go back to the um, PowerPoint? So, on average, claim ratios are 33% for microinsurance product. And I, I guess you may think it is low, and I agree it is low. Um, we've had conversations with some of these microinsurance um, providers. And one of the things they say is that um, looking at claim ratios alone may not give you a full picture because some of them offer services like um, call a doctor. So they have medical doctors that um, policyholders can call. And those are not in, that cost that they incur in providing those services are not included in the 33%. So they believe that they give added services which are not direct, directly computed when you look at um, the claims ratio. But still, we are of the view that um, even when you allow for that, those sort of claim ratios may not be given good value for the microinsurance product. Okay, one of the key things that we, we, we require in Ghana is that the microinsurance product should have as little exclusions as possible. So um, that is one of the key things, so that we, we avoid disputes later. And we've also requested that all microinsurance products should have what we call um, the um, key information. So there has to be a key information that is sent to each policyholder. And in requesting for this, you need to think carefully about the cost, because if premiums are less than a dollar, then you need to really think about um, putting too much um, overheads on the, on the insurance company. So we've allowed for the fact that you can send some of these things through the mobile as a text message, for example. Um, we are looking at ways by which you can have these um, standard policy terms and conditions for products so that an insurance company just has to say these are the standard conditions and if something is different from what the standard, then that is what it has to send to policyholders. And all these is, is, is targeted at making these things more customer-centric and make it more easier for people to understand. So, the renewals. The renewals are quite low and that comes back to the question is, um, is it good value? Because if it's good value, you would have expected that the, the, the renewal or the retentions will be a lot higher. 
if you look at the time it takes to pay claims, um, it's not as good as it should be. Um, South African funeral um, puts all the rest to shame in 48 hours, while the rest are looking at 83 days. So there's a lot more that could be done in terms of paying claims and paying it on, on time. Um, one of the big issues that um, some of the customers complain about is if there's a funeral, they would like to have the money before the funeral. They don't want to spend or go look for loans to actually do the funeral, and then after 40 days, then they get the money back. And that all um, puts a strain on their finances. So that is the end of my presentation on treating customers fairly. And I know I have one question that uh, David yeah. is, thinking, is thinking about. So, so Seth, I've got, I've got many questions for you. Um, but the, the first one is just the, the number that sort of surprised and horrified me early on is that number of 600 microfinance entities licensed. So I was curious to know, what, you know, were those all new entrants? Were those subsidiaries of existing players? Because it's, you know, it gets very encouraging to have that much interest and quite discouraging as a regulator having to deal with that. So, um, okay. So this is, um, in Ghana, we have a separate um, legal entity looking after banks and, and insurance, but all of them are separate um, entities that came into being. So it puts a lot of strain on them the regulator in getting to do this. And we have done our very best to, to avoid having too many firms for us to regulate. Great. Thank you, Seth. Okay, so we do have a little time for, for questions. I'll just quickly repeat my questions for each of the, the panelists here, and then we'll take questions from the audience. So Janice, my slightly jumbled question was looking at whether the the introduction of all the funeral requirements being very similar to microinsurance, and then many of these being, being pulled back. Now, where does microinsurance and funeral sit? In, and, and another thing we, we spoke about via email is whether microinsurance is still definitely risk only? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I've got two parts to the question. Um, so the, the one part is really to look at um, some of the issues around the the link between the funeral insurance and the microinsurance um, regulations, and then maybe um, looking at how um, they've, uh, the changes to the funeral insurance requirements, how that might fit um, with a microinsurance business that's looking at funeral insurance. So, so the first issue, so I think the first set of the policyholder protection rules that came out for comments in March, and deadline was in April, the um, regulator looked at trying to regulate funeral insurance and microinsurance in very similar ways and to have the maximum term of 12 years um, for funeral insurance as, as well as microinsurance business. And there are a lot of issues also around advertising um, your product as a funeral insurance product, which also raised quite a lot of questions and comments. So in terms of the question of the maximum for the, the 12, of 12 months for funeral insurance, so that has been relaxed. So there are a lot of players, in, well, some players in the market that have offered almost whole life um, funeral insurance type products, um, which have been popular products. So those products um, would still be permitted under the policyholder protection rules, but there's still the maximum sum insured, which is the same as the maximum for the microinsurance business. So the, the regulator did concede on some, some of the questions. And then, um, I'm not, I didn't follow the advertising issues um, as closely or carefully 
as as they need to uh, as I guess people who sell the policies would have but um, also to bear in mind that um, uh, the regulator did take some of those comments into account, but I'm not sure, I don't think that was as neatly um, resolved as it could have been, or as, as maybe the 12-month issue um, was resolved. And then some of the issues, so in terms of that 12-month um, limit, so the, the limit on risk-only business is still there. Um, Micro-insurance products um, are not investments or savings products, and they won't build up a surrender value um, because they're 12-month products um, and you're not allowed, well, I guess if you're renewing it, um, it's cashback. You can't have loyalty or cashback um, benefits on those products either. So there are a number of features, I think, to, that, ha that happen in the market that are not, um, currently, that are not um, accommodated um, in the regulations, but the, and most of those products really look at more longer-term um, business. So there's still, I think, a space for the micro-insurance business more looking at annually renewable group business and, and some of the business that hopefully the funeral parlors will be writing. Um, but it hasn't been easy because there's an existing market and some of that market is really operating well. Um, is compliance, um, it's looking at long-term policies, they have inputs from experts and actuaries, and then there's the, the unregulated um, funeral insurance, uh, funeral parlour space that's, that still needs to come to the party for the 12-month annual renewable term products. Thanks, Janice. Um, I think, yeah, if you note those claim payment timelines from Ghana compared to what we typically manage in South Africa, there's reason to recognise that you know reputable funeral providers in South Africa are providing uh, a product that that is appreciated and does meet a, a need. Uh, William, I ask you a question about the sort of impact of reinsurance, given that microinsurance is a very simple net written premium base, and SAM is a slightly more nuanced approach to to reinsurance. Is there any impact there? Should we be, would re, different reinsurance structures work better or worse under the different capital calculations? Cool, so yeah, I think as you say, the, because it's non-proportional, -propor, um, the net written premium aspect means that they, I guess they sort of thought that the main type of insurance that a microinsurance or reinsurance a microinsurance company would take is proportional. And I think you'd benefit the most in a reduction in your capital requirement from that. But I think from, and then obviously Sam would allow much better for that non-proportional aspect. But I think from a microinsurance perspective, that non-proportional reinsurance is probably better, especially if you're looking at a smaller insurer with that large claims variation that I showed in that final slide. I think they'd benefit a lot more from that, at least for the customer as well, because the risk of insolvency would go down. But from a capital perspective, that would not be the case. So I would agree that maybe a better approach is to add some aspect of non-proportional reinsurance allowance in the microinsurance capital requirement. But at the same time, you have to balance that against the complexity that will add, since the idea of this is to be a more simplified approach. Yep. Thanks, William. Are there any questions from the audience? Don't worry, I have plenty more. Um, can we get a mic to Alex up front? So maybe we're waiting while we're waiting for questions. So some of those um, times to pay claims, um, the really long time 
payments came through by adding extra features to the product. So for the property product, if you just use an index insurance product and declare the, the claim based on whether the index is triggered or not, it's much simpler than um, a product where they added additional benefits to try and indemnify the policyholders for their losses and then they had to assess, assess the actual loss. So um, there are ways to really balance trying to meet additional needs of customers in your product design that may have implications um, on the claim side. And then some, in some cases people will actually borrow to pay for the loss and then use their insurance, the money from the insurance claim at a later time. Um, to finance it. So I think it's also important to bear in mind the impact um, on our low-income households um, in delays in these processes. Um, is it on? Yeah. Uh, more just a comment relates specifically to what William was, William's calculations, comparability, as well as what Seth was alluding to. Um, I think it's uh, Seth specifically focused on distribution and I think distribution and observation from my time in that space is that's a critical factor so you look at claims ratio and you say what's fair um, and I think Nigel did some work a while ago on that as well um, and it's difficult to just look at claims ratio the market is, is he often heavily decentralized rural etc and there's a, a strong demand for uh, cost intensive interaction and distribution models and obviously that layers on top of your expense loading, layers on top of your claims ratio. So just to look at claims ratio can be a little bit misleading in, in terms of judging fairness, although uh, it, it's questionable. Um, so yeah, is 45% fair? Hmm. I, I don't think any of us in this room would like to see such a, or anything below that. Um, but realistically what you see is, um, you probably would want to be looking at the combined ratio. So is the, is the insurer actually making an unreasonable profit margin? Um, and then specifically that has an impact on William's comparability on your SAM and your, your straight. So that straight 15% microinsurance capital requirement on gross written premium. Currently in the market, the South African market, I've got strong reason to believe that those calculations aren't always accurately computable. I don't think a lot of the insurers know what gross written premium is. Uh, depending on the distribution model. So a lot of the distribution, um, the, the intermediaries, especially heavily intermediated market, um, they're not reporting fully on what they're selling that premium, what the selling premium is to the market, uh, which would mean that 15% all of a sudden skyrockets. So we did a similar comparability study um, just just at the, the, the previous company I was working at just to see which was more advantageous and was the calibration reasonable. And it, it, we had similar results to what you saw, but when we factored in the high commission and you had 20% commission there, in a heavy intermediated market, I think you'd be lucky to get away with 20%. The guys are often, they've got control of the consumer and they're, they're ladling uh, sometimes 20, 30%, but sometimes 100% on top, which just means that if you were reporting gross written premium, that 15% skyrockets and you're, you're treating customers fairly, you're, acceptable claims ratio and combined ratio starts changing quite significantly. So it's just an observation. It's not a, it's, it's difficult to just come with an idealistic viewpoint and say it's unfair, it is fair. I mean, the market is demanding a, often in many cases a face-to-face -face interaction. Um, yeah, it's just a, a nuance on the market. Uh, thanks, Alex. I hope you'll come to my session on fairness. We can continue that debate. Um, 
I saw two things interesting recently on this. One is that in the UK for the first time, the proportion of people who are happy to interact with, digitally online without a person has just risen, risen above 50%. So that's a long time coming. I think the UK and other more developed markets are ahead of us. Um, but you're right, at the moment in South Africa, very little life insurance at all is sold um, digitally, there's some. More so in the non-life space, uh, but it's a, it is a key, key issue. And with those costs, you have to ask yourself, potentially, not only is this a fair claim ratio or not, or is it more fair to have an expensive product or not to have a product at all? Um, some, of you, some of you may have heard that the regulated South Africa is going to be doing a thematic review of, sort of effectively extended motor warranties and those sort of products which are typically sold through, through third parties, are typically, typically fairly profitable, and typically have very significant distribution costs for those providers. So this debate is going to continue, that's for sure. Any other responses from the panel? Any questions, other questions from the audience? Go on over there. Thanks. Morning, Seth. Uh, question for you. With about 600 micro-insurance players, you've got a bit more experience than the South African market. If, if I take out funeral, and you've heard now that you know paying 20% of the premium, uh, you know, isn't unheard of. If you look at those claim stats and or, or stats that you gave, 33% on distribution. You affect the treating customer fairly, as the previous uh, question pointed out. The ratios and the value for money for the customer is, is very much affected. Can you give us a feel for, other than the, the mobile distribution model or the funeral parlor face-to-face -face distribution model that we've seen in South Africa, what other distribution models did those companies use and the impact on cost? And, and has Ghana given any thought to maybe legislating the maximum cost of distribution, which is where the normal insurance market in South Africa has gone? Okay, so um, we have three main players within the microinsurance. Um, two of them focus mainly on um, distributing through the mobile network. And another one does solely face-to-face. -face. And um, one of the things we did was look at um, the expense ratios of both of them. And if you look at the expense ratios of both of them, it's not too dissimilar. So whilst the other ones are paying a lot more commission to the third party, third service providers, the other one which does, what it actually does is that it goes to a market, the, um, the typical market in Ghana, and then it targets what they call the market queens. So um, those that sell um, um, cassava, planting, all of them have queens um, who are in charge. So once they target those queens and then they sell through that network and their the expense ratios are quite similar to the expense ratios of those that sell through the, um, the mobile network op operators. Um, one of the things I would like to point out is that um, the claims ratio of the microinsurance products in Ghana are not very, very different from the claims ratio of conventional insurance products. So um, in Ghana, for example, th there's a bigger issue of claims ratio in general, which is low. 
and it's not only specific to microinsurance product. And so there's a bit more work that the regulator has to do in terms of ensuring that we can move um, the claims ratio a bit higher. In terms of legislating for um, or making it mandatory that there are maximums um, um, claim ratio or maximum commission rates. There are commission rates when it's, um, when it's commissions to agents or brokers, but um, we haven't done commi maximum commission rates when it comes to third service providers like mobile networks. So that's something that um, as a regulator we need to think about and see if, if there is something that we need to do. But one of the things we've done is to say we are liberalizing the distributions of microinsurance, but um, we and to do that we want to limit um, the, the 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 sort of exclusions that we apply because we want that 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 to grow. So the last count, um, microinsurance policyholders in Ghana were in close to eight million out of a population of. Um, 28 million or so, so it's over 30%, which is quite good for us. And so we are careful not to introduce barriers that would necessarily reduce um, the uptake of this source of um, um, f cover for the, for, for the nation. Janice uh, alluded to the advertising uh, restrictions in the policy of protection rules, and I uh, needs to finish going through it. But you now are going to, sorry, going to be allowed to call a use the word funeral in a policy that isn't, strictly speaking, a regulatory defined funeral policy. So you know, that, that, that has been so opened up a little bit. But if you are going to have it be a funeral policy in terms of the act, then you need to comply with a whole range of additional constraints and conditions, but then you get the carrot, if you like, of uncapped commission. So there's quite a lot of moving parts there around, again, recognizing that if you have an expensive on a percentage of premium basis distribution model, you may be choosing between a product and no product, but then try to say, you know, do we have the clear idea of what the product is? Is the consumer going to understand it? So, I don't know, just think, think there are some, some links there as well. Um, so maybe I'll respond to the question about other types of distribution channels. So I did some research now, well, maybe about five years ago, um, on the profitability or the business case for microinsurance, and we looked at insure, an insurer in Kenya uh, in South Africa, uh, Guatemala, and um, the Philippines. And the South African insurer, because of the face-to-face -face sales, um, definitely had the highest distribution costs um, and also w w was quite, quite costly in terms of the general expense base, but it was really it was an, a long-term investment in the market where they hoped that at some stage they would get critical mass. But the issue really is in terms of, so there are groups in South Africa like um, the funeral parlors or, or other institutions that you can link with, and it is possible if you get the right number of people signing up um, for some of those um, methods to be more um, viable. But in, in some of the other countries, so in Kenya, the insurer linked up with microfinance or a savings and credit union um, that was also part of the same sort of group of companies. It was a cooperative insurer and then this was a cooperative savings 
um, institutions, so they managed to negotiate a commission or fees that were reasonable, given that they were all part of the same group. So there are ways to, to look at other institutions like microfinance institutions or savings organisations. But in Guatemala, they, even though they had quite a low um, cost, they didn't have sufficient incentives for the individual bank agents to sell the products. So um, even though they had quite a large, large number of sales um, as a percentage of the total bank clients, it was still quite a small percentage. So distribution is a very hard nut to crack. But I think for me the key insight from that research is you can't be expensive in terms of your own expenses, the, the management expenses of the insurer, and expensive in your distribution costs. So you can pay higher fees and commission if your distribution channel then does a lot of the work for you, but you need to make those processes efficient. Um, so that you can really cut, cut down on your internal costs. Um, or you can then have a distribution channel that takes less responsibility, you pay lower fees and then you have your higher costs. But um, what really stood out for the, the more South African approach is that they were higher both on the distribution model um, and on the internal expenses. So maybe that's, I don't know if it helps, but something to think about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost the infuriating challenge that I think everybody agrees you need scale to be viable and profitable in this market. But scale doesn't really translate that well to new entrants and growth. It's just you know, the, the same old providers selling a million policies rather than selling five or 10,000 policies. Um, and I mean, William, you spoke about the different impact of capital on small versus large insurers by number of policies. And what I took away from that really is that the key difference is the 4 million minimum versus the 15 million minimum. And if you can last somewhere between those, the microinsurance license can save you a lot of capital and outside of that, maybe not that much. But in that same space, I think there's gonna be questions around whether that scale is actually sufficient for a viable, profitable, sustainable, good value for money, fair policy structure. We're gonna maybe time for two last questions if there are. Mike's coming. <clears throat> okay. Uh, yeah, David, I think you touched on something that I wanted to ask. Um, basically, when it comes to insurance, I see uh, economies of scale obviously being important for your expenses, but specifically also important for your, I guess, variability of claims. And then competition in the market also being another important factor, which is, I guess, governed to some degree by the minimum entry requirements, such as capital requirements and so on. So I was just wondering, while listening to the presentation and so on, I don't have much experience in the industry, but just uh, to what extent is a micro-insurer more scalable and than a general insurer? And how, did we do any studies say, in South Africa to say how many insurers should there be for policyholders to get the best benefit out of at least the economies of scale part of, of the equation and how much competition is really necessary to to also force the shareholders not to be too greedy, I guess. So I'll, I'll hand over to my colleagues to do the, the real answer. But you touched on a, on a topic of, of that actually I'm quite keen to study at some point. What is the right number of insurers or reinsurers for a particular market where we balance that uh, a scale and competition? When I ask questions about what's a fair profit margin, many times the answer is, well, you don't have to say that because competition will make the, uh, the numbers come right and the most efficient operators and the best risk collectors will, will make the money. Yeah, that, that doesn't really work out in practice. 
in the funeral market, typically group funeral business is relatively competitive and the claim ratios are okay and the profit margins aren't great. But on the individual side, oftentimes those profit margins do still get quite attractive because there is frankly less competition. Uh, but I don't have an answer to the really good question of what is the right scale, what's the right number. But there is some very appropriate and maybe slightly concerning wording that the regulator can look at a microinsurer and say, hang on, you are so big and so systemically important or such size, we're actually going to require you to do the SAM capital calculation in any case. And would probably ask you to do all the, the, the governance requirements for a traditional insurer anyway. So if you ever got to the point of being that big, I think the question becomes moot that yes, you would just be a normal insurer. Don't there any other comments from, from the others? So I've got a couple of thoughts. I'm not sure if it's going to answer the question completely. Um, so I think in South Africa, um, because we, we look at the function that an inter intermediary performs rather than the type of intermediary, um, there is more flexibility for different types of representatives or intermediaries acting in the market. So, so that um, creates a, a bit more space there. But I did some research with one of my honours students a couple of years ago on working and partnering with burial societies and funeral parlours. And a number of the insurers felt that they just couldn't be confident in being able to meet the compliance requirements or that the, inter the, the partner that they wanted to work with would be able to meet the the compliance requirements. So, so even though there are opportunities, um, there's still issues in terms of the, the stages of the development of the markets and being able to meet your regulatory requirements. Um, so David, there isn't an answer to the right number of insurers, um, but somebody in the World Bank's done some information, uh, done some research in terms of looking at the market share and index that looks at market share and how many players um, should be a, a magic number in terms of um, the market share of the, the big players. So I, they haven't done any work on microinsurance, but um, there is work on the traditional insurance markets. And yeah, so I think in some ways competition is good, but in other ways you really, a, a, a number of entities really, they know their customers, they develop um, products that are on, on niche products that meet certain needs that might have added benefits. So um, there's, there's a lot to play in terms of the relationship that the intermediary channels or the existing channels have with their customers, which might um, be stronger than um, looking at um, consolidation um, happening in the market and, and players growing. I can't remember what If I had a comment on... No, so those are my two comments um, on the questions. Okay. Quick one. There is an actuary at the World Bank called Craig Thenbo. And he's done some research on the optimum number of insurance company per market. So if you are interested, um, if you Google that, you'll get a paper that looks at it. But uh, it doesn't come up with an exact number, but it gives you some of the things to think about. So that would be a good paper to look at. So I don't remember the full name of the paper, but part of the name is um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So um, is there a just right um, for the number of insurers in your market? And apparently they're updating it at the end of the year, so maybe there'll be an updated paper um, early next year to have a look at. Okay, right. Uh, Seth, William, Janice, thank you very much for your presentations. Was audience, was there one question at the back? Yeah, they're good. Thank you. Hello.
Um, no, my question was just around the comment that Janice made earlier about uh, if funeral, funeral parlors come to the party, uh, is the expectation that the existing funeral party parlors will actually come to the party, especially given the minimum capital requirements uh, that are required for to actually operate as a micro insurer? And if they do, given that there are quite a number of them, what does it actually mean given the comment made earlier about there being too many micro-insurers in terms of, is it really realistic in terms of to actually regulate and um, that many potential micro-insurers? So thanks. I think that's a very, a very valid um, point about how many micro-insurers will, will we need to be supervising. It might be more than the 600 microfinance institutions in Ghana. Um, so there has been quite a lot of engagement um, with the funeral parlours over, over the years, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done um, in that space in, in getting um, people on board in terms of being able to, to take advantage um, of the new regulatory requirements. So hopefully we'll be able to see act some activity in that space going forward. Hello. Yeah, I just want to quickly jump in there. So I think the, the first question was how many micro-insurers do you need? Uh, I thought Seth was going to come up with the answer, 600. But um, I think the reality is in South Africa, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of insurers operating in the funeral insurance space. They're just not regulated. So that comes back to your comment. Are there funeral parlors on board? Uh, and this is probably more anecdotal in my experience, so I can't necessarily say that is definitely the fact, but I've spent a lot of time in the, the rural areas speaking to a funeral parlor driving around, and while I'll be driving through an informal aerial, he'll point out 15, 20 other funeral parlors selling funeral insurance unregulated, outside of the regulatory scope, and possibly even unaware of the regulatory scope. So uh, uh, there's a lot of competition out there, but... Uh, the competition also becomes a little bit of regulatory arbitrage. So they often see the, the regulatory burden as exactly that, a burden. Um, they don't necessarily want to formalize because the guy down the road is selling a product. He doesn't have to pay an insurer anything. He doesn't have to have governance. Um, so even when you're talking about capital, capital's one part, part of it. There's, are, are, is a funeral parlor trained and able to run an insurance, even a micro-insurance at proportionally lower uh, governance requirements? Uh, some of the guys that I've met, yes. The majority, I would say no, unfortunately. So for me, that, that, that's been a key point, that in this sort of nearly decade that we've been moving, the original microchip policy framework was fairly clear to my mind that it was trying to be very simple, very low cost, very capital light, in order to have a vehicle to enforce regulation rather than, I think, perhaps recognizing that there actually probably wasn't a fit-for-purpose vehicle back then. But over time, our regulator, I guess, has got scared. And that's probably not, not necessarily a bad thing, but like we've had a very stable insurance sector in South Africa. Not like the banks who fail every other day, right? We, I'm sure we tend not, not to fail. That's a good thing. But I think the, the capital requirements and the complexity and uh, the session meeting earlier in the year, looking through the various governance requirements, and the governance requirements for a micro-insurer are not that much lighter than for a fully regulated insurer. So I would be very happy if we had many micro-insurers applying. I worry we may have none or three, 
And now I do worry that we actually may end up with 600 or 1,000. Maybe that's a different problem to have. But at this stage, I'm actually a little nervous that all of this work, all of this effort, all of this backwards and forwards might end up still having a vehicle that doesn't really suit anybody well enough to be used, which I think would be a failure. Okay, we are out of time. Thank you very much for your attention and questions, and thank you to the speakers.